Welcome to Fireside Breakdowns. I'm John. And I'm Robin. Together, we research and break down complex and timely topics facing our society and bring our findings to you every week. Our promise to you is to bring you honest analysis, backed by research, to skew our bias towards what can factually be supported, and to try and make it clear when we're giving our opinion versus speaking about actual research. Naturally, we're human. We have blind spots and biases, and they will show through. But our goal isn't to convince you to think any certain way. We want to give everyone a foundational understanding of these complicated topics so that together we can discuss and address them in a thoughtful, beneficial way. Because of the topics that we cover, some of our episodes might get heavy, and some topics might seem divisive. But we believe that even on these issues, common understanding can be found. And we hope that those of you listening agree. We don't accept that the current state of society is the way that it must be. Together, through discussion and on common ground, we can build a better world for ourselves and for future generations. So we suggest getting comfortable, maybe having a good drink on hand as we work through this stuff. Welcome to our fireside. Welcome indeed to the second half of our series breaking down issues impacting Americans' ability to vote. Last week, we talked at length about partisan gerrymandering and how that practice allows political parties to ostensibly control the outcomes of elections through shifty redistricting practices like packing, cracking, hijacking, kidnapping, and other tactics that sound like they belong in a Nick Cage movie. This episode, well, we're talking about legislation. Legislation that some folks believe protects American democracy and others believe threatens it. Our goal here is to break down some of the state and federal bills from both sides of the aisle that are making news so that you have a better understanding of what they say and what the key arguments are from each side. And then we'll probably tell you how we feel about them based on our research and our experience. But remember, you don't have to come to the same conclusions that we do. All that we ask is that you base your conclusions in fact rather than feeling, and that you engage with others with respect and care for their conclusions and their experiences. Eh, that's enough touchy-feely for now. <laughs> so, this one's going to feel a little less like an action flick. I don't know if many of ours feel that way, but we'd <laughs> like to think they do because we're nerds. Last week was uh, exciting. Hacking, cracking, yeah. kidnapping, hijacking, <laughs> all that. I feel like it actually belongs in like a song of some sort. Anyway. Um, <laughs> the next Cardi B chart-topper. <laughs> <laughs> oh, <God. laughs> Got these gerrymandered districts. Got these. No. Uh, anyway, uh, this this episode's more like um, Kramer versus Kramer with all that's with all the the back and forth arguing over voter rights legislation, and we're sorry for that. But the bills we're going to talk about in this episode are way too important to reduce to the most sensational headlines. As with most things having to do with laws, bureaucracy, and our government, the devil is in the details here. And you deserve to know exactly what your representatives are voting or refusing to vote on. Some quick definitions before we dive in. Throughout the episode, you're going to hear us use terms like restrictive and expansive to describe these pieces of legislation. Unlike many of the definitions that we bring you in our episodes... These words mean exactly what it sounds like they mean in this context. 
When we say something is restrictive, we mean that it limits access or the ability to vote. When we say that it's expansive, we mean that it increases access or people's ability to vote. And a single piece of legislation can have both restrictive and expansive provisions. All right, let's get to it. We're going to start with state voting bills. This has been a bumper year for state-level voting-related legislation. Nearly 1,200 <laughs> pieces of voting-adjacent legislation have been introduced in all 50 states, some of them with provisions restricting access to the ballot box, others with provisions aiming to expand it, and some of them, well, they just talk about election stuff. Like Oklahoma's emergency SB 347 that outlines several very specific dates on which localities are not allowed to hold elections for state or municipal office so that important administrative work can be done. Which brings us to an important PSA. Not every election or voting-related piece of legislation out there represents a tug-of-war for the rights of voters. Some of them are primarily administrative or reflect new funding methods or whatever. It's really easy to get caught up in the sensationalism of the numbers. Almost 1,200 voting-related bills, 389 pieces of legislation attempting to restrict voter rights, 880 bills championing the rights of voters. These are headline facts. If a piece of legislation contains one provision that restricts some element of voter access, it goes into the restrictive bucket. Likewise, if one provision of another bill increases access in any way, it goes into the expansive bucket. And remember, a single piece of legislation could technically go into both buckets. Since we can't cover all the provisions of each of these 1,200 efforts, we're going to talk mostly about the trends that exist across these bills and what those trends might mean for state voters and for precedents. But if you're interested in what's happening in your state, go out and find the legislation that's moving or has moved through your state legislature. Don't rely on sensational headlines or even solely on our summaries to determine whether or not voters are getting a fair shake where you are. Actually, I'm even going to go one step further even if you are not interested exactly. <laughs> That's fair. That's go fair. out and see what your state is doing about voting. Because I imagine uh, some of the actions being taken in certain quote-unquote uh, uh, leftist states are actually going to be restrictive and surprising to people. And some of the actions taken in mm -hmm. these red states are going to be expansive and going to surprise some people. In fact, I know some of the steps being taken in the red states are actually expansive and might be surprising. The importance is for you as a citizen to go out and find what the bills in your districts are so you can champion the parts that are expansive because in a democracy, all eligible voters should vote for that democracy to be healthy, right? Um, and to find the parts that are restrictive that make it harder for eligible voters, for legal voters, quote unquote, to vote, um, you, should, you should start decrying those and be aware that they're happening at all because they make our democracy less healthy. Exactly. And like we're going to talk about in just a little bit here, the way that things sound on the surface 
may not accurately reflect how they are in function. So you have to get out there and you have to know how these bills work so that you can get out there and be a champion of democracy. Yes. Yes. And now back to our regularly scheduled programming. Okay, it's time to talk trends. Let's start with bills that restrict access in some way or another. As of May 14, 2021, 389 bills with restrictive voting provisions had been introduced in 48 states during the 2021 legislative season. But the distribution of these bills is not quite even. (laughs) Certain states are leading the charge, and they are largely Republican states, to be exact. 49 of those bills were introduced in Texas, 25 in Georgia, and 23 in Arizona. Now, before you ding us for being unnecessarily partisan here, you can compare the states that are actively moving these laws through the legislative process to the list of states that are currently under Republican legislative control, meaning that Republicans have a majority in both chambers of the state legislature or control the full legislature or full state control, meaning they control the legislature and the governor's office. Um, Texas, Republican state control, nine bills moving through the process. Wisconsin, Republican legislative control, seven bills moving. Michigan, Republican legislative control, nine bills moving. So far, 28 of these more restrictive bills have been enacted in 17 states. And the states leading the way here are also under Republican legislative control. Florida, Georgia, Iowa enacted sweeping legislation via omnibus bills, and all three are Republican-controlled states. Arkansas and Montana have each enacted four pieces of legislation. Republican control there, too. This is where the tie between last week's conversation on gerrymandering and this week's breakdown of legislation becomes glaringly obvious. Remember that we talked about how, after the 2010 census, partisan gerrymandering was so significant that even though Democratic candidates won 1.5 million more votes in congressional elections, Republican candidates won 33 more seats in Congress. Well, those same principles apply to elections for state legislative seats. Gerrymandering directly affected and continues to affect the outcome of state elections, currently putting the power in the hands of Republican candidates. Currently, Republicans hold legislative control in 30 states and full state control in 23. And that makes it very, very easy to pass legislation that has the potential to lend strength to the party in control. We're going to caveat here one more time. It's not that we necessarily have anything against a Republican being in control or Republicans controlling state legislatures. It's that currently, in this moment in time, the vast majority of the bills that are being passed that are restrictive are in these red states and look like they are built to make it more likely that Republicans will continue to control the state. Right. Which, if a state is continually controlled by a Republican and the elections are fair, that is great. But even if a state were continually controlled by the perfect politician, whatever that is, But that politician were elected in an unjust way, an unfair way, it would still be wrong. 
So it doesn't matter if the person in control is somebody you agree with, if the way they got power is ethically wrong. We have to work for more fair and equitable society so that we make sure that we are serving the society and not a small sect or a minority within that society. Right. The problem with either party gerrymandering things, moving things around so that they retain control is that it keeps the other party and voters from the other party from being effective in participating in their state democracy. So I know we talked about the fact that there are 1,200 bills that have been introduced, but in reality, the number of those bills that are going to even make it through the first stage of the process, it's minute in comparison. So when we talk about the bills that are moving through the legislative process or the bills that have been passed, even though there are more than two to one bills that are have expansive provisions versus bills that have restrictive provisions, the likelihood that those expansive bills are going to make it all the way through the legislative process is much lower in states that are controlled by a party that really wants to restrict voting access because they have they have no impetus, they have no motivation to actually consider or pass those other bills. So that's why gerrymandering is important and that's why it's relevant to this conversation about actual voting legislation. But what do these bills even look like, right? these restrictive provisions, many of them share a common emphasis in four key areas, voting by mail, voter ID, voter registration, and voter roll purges. Now, we'll start here with the vote by mail situation. It is no secret that expansions of absentee and vote by mail programs contributed heavily to the ability of many Americans to vote in the fall 2020 election. But bills currently moving through the state legislatures, and some that have already been enacted, are looking to limit access to those programs. 16 separate restrictions across 12 states have already been enacted. They have already been signed into law. And 32 more bills in 15 states are moving through the legislative process actively. These bills contain restrictions, including laws that shorten the time frame in which people can request mail-in ballots. Georgia cut their window by more than half as a part of their legislation. They contain laws that make it harder for states to send a mail-in ballot automatically by regulating how long people can stay on vote-by-mail registers or requiring that voters specifically and actively confirm that they would like to receive a mail-in ballot. They contain laws that make it more difficult for absentee voters to return their ballots in person, including shorter windows for return and limits on ballot box availability and restrictions on who can get assistance and how for returning their ballot. They're laws that require stricter signature regulations and they're laws that establish or expand on identification rules for mail-in voting. Now, on their face these restrictions don't sound particularly oppressive. After all, we want mail-in voting programs to be as secure as possible, right? At least as secure as mail-in, or sorry, at least as secure as in-person voting. At different points in time, both parties have argued for more security and regulation around mail-in ballots in Georgia, which was a hotbed of controversy in November because of its no-excuses absentee policy. 
And the main contention on the table is the potential for fraud or undue voter influence. Requiring identification and limiting time windows, proponents say, would cut down on the likelihood of people casting votes in others' names or voting more than once. But when we're considering these regulations and what they're designed to do, we also have to look at whether or not these restrictions are necessary to correct or to prevent a real problem. Are they making it more difficult for legitimate voters to cast their ballots without demonstrated evidence of fraud? And we won't cover all the evidence for and against fraud in vote-by-mail programs tonight. If you want to know what the research said before the 2020 election, we have a whole episode on that just for you. But here's what evidence from last year's election, the one with record vote-by-mail numbers, tells us. There is still no evidence of significant vote-by-mail fraud. Even in the hottest of hot-button states, Georgia, Wisconsin, and Michigan, all three of those states have recently completed reviews of contested mail-in ballots and election results and found pretty much nothing. Bupkis. Nada. Well, okay, that's not exactly true. Wisconsin has referred 30 people for prosecution for suspected voter fraud out of 3 million. That's 0.001%. One thousandth of one percent. There was not a single race that was that close in November yeah. 2020. And and that's, the, that's like the problem. If you make a law that makes voting more restrictive for somebody and that voting prevents you know 50 people from casting a right. ballot in that election what amount of fraud is being prevented of it by that because if there are only 30 people out of a million out of 3 million rather rather that are that even committed fraud like you didn't get any payoff you didn't actually change or save that election because the level of fraud that is present is insignificant. It is mm-hmm. statistical noise that doesn't actually change the outcome of any given election. It's performative. So it is. It is. It's something that is done because it sounds good to people, mm-hmm. but the implications of the law weren't fully thought through. Or, more nefariously, they were thought through and found to be in favor of one side, and that's why they pushed it. So when you hear a law that sounds reasonable and good to you, but there is a whole group of people saying, whoa, whoa, that is a problem. We need to pump the brakes here. They're probably not saying that because they're like, they're trying to cheat. Right. They're probably saying that because there are legitimate concerns about what is really the impact of that law. One such law, and that that comes up and 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 it's it's cyclical. One such thing is voter ID requirements. Yes. So so far, three states have enacted laws that impose new or stricter ID requirements for voting in person. And at least 15 bills related to voter ID for both in-person and mail-in voting are in progress. Arguments for voter ID laws are pretty straightforward. 
people should have to prove that they are who they say they are in order to vote in an election. Forms of identification accepted at the polls have varied from state to state, ranging from explicit ID, like a driver's license or passport, to voter registration cards and utility bills. But many states, like Missouri, are working to implement stricter photo ID policies. The claim is they maintain that these, these policies are necessary to prevent fraud at the polls, like people voting in place of their dead friends or relatives. And they, at least here in Missouri, or there in Missouri because I'm in Virginia, assert that there are assistance programs to help voters ensure that they have the appropriate ID to vote. But those who oppose these laws say that they suppress voting, especially among racial and language minority groups, and among low-income people. The logic goes something like this. Minority and low-income voters are less likely to have access to the resources that they need, whether that's time, money, transportation, or access to bureaucratic systems, the ability to communicate. They lack those resources to comply with stricter voter ID policies. They may lack the resources to obtain the identification, or they may also lack the resources required to remedy the situation if they misplace their ID or forget to bring their ID when they visit the polls. And because voting has little perceived benefit for many minority and low-income people, they are less likely to expend extra effort in order to be able to do it. Both of these are really compelling arguments. But who has research on their side? That's actually a tricky question to answer. First, we have to, we have to go back to the question of voter fraud. And not just any fraud, but specifically those types that could be resolved through the use of stricter voter ID regulations. Do we have evidence that voter impersonation is a real problem in state or federal elections? No. We just don't. We don't have evidence that it's an issue at all. Research indicates that the occurrence of voter impersonation, double voting, and other types of ID-related fraud sits somewhere between 0003 and 0.0025%. Again, we're in the thousandths of 1%. One investigation by the Washington Post found just 16 cases in which individuals were charged with voter fraud in the 2020 November election. 16. In the whole election. There just isn't compelling evidence that these restrictions are needed. But will they make it harder for minorities to vote? The idea that strict ID laws suppress votes has become a pretty widely accepted principle in many political spheres. But little research has actually been done that can effectively test the hypothesis. In 2017, a group of political scientists set out to solve the mystery using data obtained through the Cooperative Congressional Election Study, or CCES. That bank of data includes a lot of demographic information, not just for registered voters, but for people who actually cast a ballot. And it looked like their conclusions showed real evidence that strict voter laws suppress minority votes. But in 2019, another group of researchers set out to validate that conclusion using more data, and they were unable to replicate that result, 
except when they specifically manipulated data that they got from other places to meet certain criteria. The bottom line is that we don't know if these tighter regulations will disenfranchise minority or low-income voters. But we do know that there's not much in the way of compelling evidence to support the idea that they're necessary. Right. And I want to touch on something. You said when they manipulated the data, that doesn't mean when they changed the no. data. No, guys. they didn't that change means, it. Yeah, when they restrict like which groups of people they're looking at right. or where the data is coming from, they can yes. replicate certain results. But it's not necessarily a good practice for supporting an overall hypothesis. Right. In this That's case, all that means. they found that they had to, to limit to certain time periods um, in order to replicate the results of the 2017 study. And so basically they essentially had to exclude some newer data that balanced out that older data. So the, the outcome, the conclusion was not nearly as solid as they wanted it to be in order to say that they could replicate those results. Right. Which again, what it doesn't mean that the first study was like intentionally misleading people to make right. a, a political point. That's not how science works. Uh, what we see through this example is is actually how science works, where you do one study or you you do one set of research and it leads to the hypothesis or it looks like it supports one particular hypothesis. And then you get more data. And when you get more data, you refine the hypothesis because the more data you have, the closer you can get to an accurate picture. So right. that's I, I want to harp on that because I think science literacy is part of the of a different problem we're seeing right now with people questioning, like, why does the CDC keep changing their guidance about what we can do with the coronavirus or where, why or why not wear this mask? You know, it's about getting more data and refining your the knowledge that we have. That's all it is. It's yeah. not nefarious. It's, it's science. science. Yeah. So back to the, the themes in legislation we're singing, seeing, seeing. <laughs> Um, the next one to talk about is register, uh, sorry, restrictions to voter registration and several bills are in motion that make it more difficult for people to register to vote, requiring stricter ID, um, but also disallowing voter registration on election day, sometimes called same day voting or same day registration, um, prohibiting automatic voter registration, which is, you know, once you meet a certain threshold, you are automatically registered to vote normally an age thing. Opposition to same-day voter registration claims that these programs make it easier to commit fraud because election officials have no time to verify the accuracy of voter registration information and that they make election administration harder because officials can't anticipate the number of voters or ballots or precinct workers that might be needed that day. Those all seem like logical concerns. But the thing is, before this year, 20 states had active same-day registration programs, and there have been no significant reports of fraud in those states, even with same-day registration. In all of those states, voters are required to show identification of some sort and proof of residency to register. And in some of them, the ballots are considered provisional until registration information can be verified. 
that means that they cast their vote, but the vote isn't counted yet. It's provisional. If there's a problem, that vote never makes it to the official tally. All of these states use statewide voter systems to verify that the voter has not already cast a ballot in real time. Some states require the person be present to register to vote. Others limit the locations where one can register. The point is that it has been done effectively and without fraud. And as for the cost and the chaos caused by unpredictable voter turnout, states have figured out how to solve for that as well. And it has proved, and it has not proved so cumbersome as to overwhelm election administration so far. That's why data modeling and data science is like a thing, right? <laughs> so you can predict stuff. That is a whole career field. Right. I promise you there's somebody behind a desk somewhere who can say, look, even if you do same-day registration, this is about what you can expect in your area. There's, yeah. There are spreadsheets for that. Oh, definitely. There's an actuary somewhere that's just like, oh, yeah, I'm ready for this. This is my time to shine. They have an actual abacus. They don't even use calculators. No. They're just sitting there clicking away with their beads. Right. <laughs> abacus. Those are so cool. I love those. Those who support same-day registration programs say that they have a discernible impact on voter turnout. And there's some evidence that same-day registration increases voter turnout. Somewhere around 5% is a common estimate. But there isn't evidence that these policies shape any partisan outcomes or benefit any specific populations. So the idea that that by limiting same-day registration, you might be able to shape the outcome of an election for a particular party or another particular party, there isn't really science to back that up. It would just, again, cause undue burden for those who are hoping to register to vote on the same day who maybe have moved or have whatever life circumstances going on, or maybe they're just newly invigorated by the democratic process. Maybe it's because of this podcast, whatever, whatever the reasoning, it would restrict their ability to, to register on the same day and vote without any evidence that it would um, either spur on fraud or cause any significant outcome for one party or the other. Right. And that's something just in general, when we talk about this, when you think about voting, there's an old sort of um, maxim, I suppose, that kind of states that higher voter turnout generally favors the Democratic Party. It's actually one that I used to believe. Um, but it turns out that there's actually no great, there's not a lot of evidence to support that claim, necessarily. Whereas it, it might be true it doesn't mean that it actually might affect the election. I don't know. I don't know how else to to word it because people are like, well, if more more of one party turn out, it should vote an election. Yeah, but it gets humans are weird, and when they yes. think that there's a lot of turnout happening for their person, they don't turn out. Right. Um, they're like, oh. It, Hillary Clinton's going to win the election. It's a shoe-in. Exactly. They don't vote. There you go. Or when they think um, that there's a lot of turnout for the opposition party, they might be more. They turn out more. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So there's more than just the availability of, of the franchise that goes into determining who will vote 
and how that will affect an election. And that is really the, the snarl that we see in all of these conversations about, well, if you do this, you know, it's going to make it impossible for Democrats to win. Or if you do that, it's going to make it impossible for Republicans to win. That said, <laughs> that said, you don't determine whether or not something is right by its impact alone. <laughs> right. You also have to weigh intent and potential. And if something makes it harder to vote on paper, in theory, for if it makes it harder for legal Americans to vote without affecting fraud, it's still a bad law, no matter who it's coming from. That's the, that's the root of the issue. The final thread among these restrictive pieces of legislation is the expansion of acceptable timeframes and methods in which election administrators can purge the voter registration database. These are called voter roll purges. The idea here is that people who lose eligibility to vote in a certain state or county should be removed from the list of people who can walk in and cast a vote or mail in a ballot. These people may have moved, may have committed a crime that disqualifies them from voting, or they may even have died. Proponents of these restrictions claim that too many ineligible voters stay on the roll for too long, leaving the door open for, you guessed it, didn't you, fraud. <laughs> Those who oppose these more intense purges say that they run the risk of removing eligible voters from the rolls and disenfranchising those for whom re-registration could be a burden. We've already talked extensively about the lack of evidence that people who shouldn't be voting are voting in any quantity that would influence even a state election. So we won't recover that ground. But we do have evidence that aggressive voter roll purges can affect people who are still legitimate voters. In Wisconsin, use of new information databases wrongly flagged 4,700 voters as having moved and then nullified their registration. These voters were still allowed to cast provisional ballots, but the case is currently with the Wisconsin Supreme Court to determine if use of data like this to purge the rolls is acceptable. Like so many other the like so many of these other provisions, we have to ask whether or not these restrictions are solving for a real and actual problem, or if they're limiting access on an unfounded basis. Are we chasing waterfalls? <sighs> We should just um, stick to the rivers and the lakes that we're used to. Right. The key, I think a key study in the conversation about voter uh, restriction, voter laws, uh, and fraud is the 2020 election. Uh, people who had a pulse and the ability to form memories uh, in 2020 will remember that Accusations of fraud were pretty rampant. And we currently have people looking for bamboo fibers in in ballots in Arizona because, oh, well, honestly, because they're racist, but because uh, <laughs> they just assume stuff coming from China has bamboo in it, I guess. <laughs> oh, my uh, God. <laughs> but... Because they think that there was so much fraud that it cost Donald J. Trump the, the, the presidency because that's what he said. 
And there hasn't been, again, we talked about this last year. It's not like you can just, you can just commit fraud. (laughs) It's incredibly difficult. It's way harder than people imagine because when these, when these laws were written to allow for certain voting methodologies, right? The people who wrote them had to consider how they could be abused and try to solve for that up front. You know, we, if you've ever read legislation, you know how incredibly boring it can be because especially big pieces of legislation have just caveat after caveat after caveat and sub rules and sub rules of the sub rules and a footnote for the section for the sub rule. And it's just like when a law is written, it is usually, usually tailored very, very, very narrowly. One reason is to head off stuff like this because people know that if you leave the door open for fraud, for cheating, somebody's going to try to abuse it. So a lot of these doors were shut in advance. The, the, the problem never existed because the problem was written out to begin with. Sorry, a little bit of a soapbox moment. I just don't, just because you don't like politicians, right? <laughs> none of us really do, doesn't mean that they're actually dumb. Yeah. When they, when they go about writing these things, they've got entire, basically entire committees of lawyers yes. going over them and identifying the places that need to be strengthened and looking for places that leave loopholes. So, yeah. It's, anyway. It's a whole thing. Let's, it's like a whole job. Um, we're going to talk now about expansive legislation. So we just, we spent the first, uh, well, the majority of this episode talking about uh, restrictive legislation or, or claims or legislation that could pro- possibly restrict voter access. Now we're going to talk about legislation that might be able to expand it. And if you thought there were a lot of restrictive laws, well, like we said, there are 880 bills with expansive provisions at play in 49 states. And we're, we're going to list every one of them. So this is going to take some time, folks. So, uh, so buckle up. The first one, it, no, I'm, <laughs> that would be. That would be so rude. I, we couldn't even, I, I, we couldn't survive that one. Nope. Um, the provisions in these bills mirror those in restrictive legislation. They focus on expanding mail-in voting, expanding access to early voting and same-day registration, increasing polling locations and hours, and we just covered all of those talking points for those. The ones, the one place they differ significantly is in the restoration of voting rights for formerly incarcerated individuals who have completed their punitive sentences. Now, one of the major bills at play on the national level you have probably heard of is H.R. 1, the For the People Act. H.R. 1 is a packed, packed piece of legislation. It contains 10 main sections or titles, all with subsections or subtitles outlining specific guidance. It covers so many of the issues that we touched on in the state legislation section And it laid down federal law that would go toe-to-toe with those new state rules. However, right now, um, 
It's dead in the water. Everyone's favorite monarch, I mean, Senator Joe Manchin, wrote a pretty blunt op-ed that effectively sunk any prospect of it passing at this point in time. It's not that this piece of legislation should be given up, but it's probably a better use of your time to talk about the legislation that's currently in play, because you're going to be hearing a lot more about it for the time being. And we will absolutely come back to address HR1 in another episode, because there's a lot to it, and it's not dead dead. It's like the bad guy at the end of an action movie where he looks really, really, really dead, but you know that if the female protagonist were to, like, go in the room and close the door, the bad guy would be in there. It's not dead dead. But the current roadblock that it's facing means that it's it's not going anywhere at this exact moment. Basically, the Republicans in the Senate voted against even opening it for, you know, argument in the Senate. They currently do not even seem interested in talking about voting rights legislation, let alone voting on it. It could absolutely be its own show by itself, and it frames a lot of very interesting things going on in the U.S. with respect to voting. But for now, we're going to talk about the John Lewis Voting Rights Act. The John Lewis Voting Rights Act is named after now-deceased Senator John Lewis. He was a civil rights icon. He, I, I honestly, he was a living piece of history. <laughs> yes. Yeah, up, and, up until last year. He yeah. died last year, unfortunately, from a late-stage pancreatic cancer um, that was discovered in December 2019. And he, <laughs> he was a fascinating human being. And... We honestly should do a whole episode on on his story because it is incredible. He's famous for saying or promoting the idea of getting into good trouble, which basically means getting into trouble for the right cause. Mm -hmm. So this bill has been, it's actually been around for quite a a while, I think pretty much since 2013, um, but it was renamed in his honor last year after he passed. So... The John Lewis Voting Rights Act is currently the last best hope for some sort of voter reform coming from the Democratic side of the aisle. This is in large part thanks to Joe Manchin. As we said, they basically scuttled, he basically scuttled H.R. 1. And um, there's, so far, I haven't seen any, there's no other legislation forthcoming. Uh, This act aims to be a step towards bringing our elections a little closer to fairness. How? Well, by taking a page from Hollywood's playbook. That is, by recycling an old story and telling it again. Okay, well, recycling an old law in this case. (laughs) Right. The John Lewis Voting Rights Advancement Act, which is its full name, is actually a restoration of the full protections of the original bipartisan Voting Rights Act of 1965. Politically attentive listeners may know that this act was actually reauthorized by Congress in 2006, but the Supreme Court gutted it in 2013. To understand this act, therefore, we have to hop in the Wayback Machine and take a look at the case of Shelby Counter v. Holder from 2013 and what problem exactly Shelby County, Alabama had with the Voting Rights Act of 1965. Well, Aside from the obvious, 
1965 Voting Rights Act was enacted as a response to the nearly century-long history of voter discrimination faced by certain groups in the United States. Take a guess. Take a guess at which groups. Hint. It is not white folks. Now, very specifically, Section 5 of the 1965 Act prohibits eligible districts from enacting changes to their election laws and procedures without first gaining official authorization. Eligibility was determined by those districts that had voting tests in place as of November 1, 1964, and less than 50% turnout for the 1964 presidential election. In other words, if you had a voting test in place as of November 1, 1964, and less than half of the people in your district turned out to actually vote, you were covered by this act. This section of this act. Right. These two, it's actually like section five and then section 4B, I think. So why these two provisions? After all, does it not make sense to ensure that the voting population is, say, literate, does it not make sense to have a comprehension test to make sure that they, you know, understand words? Would it not be wise to ensure that the voting population was able to comprehend the legislation and issues they were voting on? Is it not just protecting democracy to make sure people aren't showing up to polls and checking off boxes all willy-nilly? Does it not also protect the voter from inadvertently casting a vote against their own self-interest? Aren't the tests a reasonable way to ensure future generations have a country to grow up in by securing our democracy against the illiterati? Won't somebody think of the children? Well, yeah, no. Um, <laughs> some of you may have guessed this already, but the poll tests are just super duper discriminatory against the uneducated. The uneducated usually were also poor, lacking education because they could not spare the time to go to school. Their labor was needed to run a farm or work in a mine or otherwise support the family. And wouldn't you know that there was just accidentally probably a massive overlap in the illiterate population and the black population? Even in the 1960s, you know, during segregation. <laughs> Some of you are probably just shocked to learn this information. But yeah, poll tests of all stripes have usually been deployed in order to keep two population groups from voting. Blacks, in general, and poor whites. And these tests were not exactly administered fairly. One test had 68 questions on it of varying difficulty, the official in charge of voter registration would ask a question at random of a prospective voter, and only by answering correctly could you vote. Answer wrong, and sorry, but the official feels that you're just not literate enough to comprehend the weighty matters at stake in this election. Please study up, work hard, and who knows, by the next election, you may be smart enough to vote. Oh, and lest you think that one correct answer would be enough the official could ask as many of the questions as they felt necessary. Even if you answered all 68 questions in this particular test, the official may arbitrarily decide you still aren't eligible to vote. It doesn't help that these tests were designed to cause someone to fail. Here are some of the sample questions. 
Does enumeration affect the income tax levied on citizens in various states? The answer to that is yes. Appropriation of money for the armed services can be only for a period of time limited to blank years. You have to give the number of years. I'll wait. The answer is two. It's two years. I want to do a couple. Okay. If no, if no candidate for president receives a majority of the electoral vote, who decides who will become president? This is actually a pop quiz for our listeners, but it's also actually on this particular test that I found. But you should know, if you listen to us, you should know this one. It's the House of Representatives. Mm-hmm. One more. And this one... <laughs> If you zone out halfway through this question, that's fine because I zone out reading it. The only laws which can be passed to apply to an area in a federal arsenal are those passed by blank, provided consent for the purchase of the land is given by the blank. I literally, I had to read that so many times because I don't even know what the question actually is. Right. Because the, the, the way it's worded is specific. I mean, it's meant to be hard to read. Right. And it's, what it's saying is like the only laws which can be passed, comma, <laughs> in an area that is within a federal arsenal, comma, federal lands, right? are those passed by Congress. So only Congress can pass those laws to apply to those areas. But only if the state legislatures, that's the second blank, the state legislatures have provided consent for the purchase of that land. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. It's, it's a poorly worded question, as we said, on purpose. It's right. meant to be confusing. I don't know. I, I mean, yeah, I'd, I'd fail this. I'd fail this test. I read through all 68 of the questions, and we do this podcast. We're 41 sessions in now. For probably a solid 30, 35 of those have something to do with the laws of the United States, and right. especially Congress and, um, and, congr- and, and federal law. And I, I couldn't pass it. There were a lot I didn't know. A lot of these questions are about obscure parts of the Constitution that the average American citizen neither knows nor has much need to know because it doesn't generally matter to them and, or, or how they would vote. So reading through the questionnaire, it's <laughs> honestly, I would be willing to bet that not a single person in Congress could pass it without some help. Honestly. Yeah. But the thing is, some of the questions are just so easy. True or false, the Supreme Court is the chief lawmaking body of the state. Well, that's obviously false. Choose one. Communism is the type of government in the United States, Russia, or England. Russia. The short of it being that these tests were obviously inequitable. They served one purpose, and that was for the election official to be able to eliminate undesirable voters. So if your county or state had a test like this, it was most likely being racist AF. And it was unconstitutionally infringing on the voting rights of American citizens. 
But since you can't just say that any particular law is necessarily impacting turnout, they tied it together with that 50% threshold. Because, well, these things really worked. As a result of racial discrimination in state voting laws, only 3% of voting age black men and women in the South were registered to vote in 1940. In Mississippi, less than 1% were registered. The Shelby County v. Holder decision basically put an end to the provisions in the 1965 Voting Rights Act that meant that these counties or states had to get permission to change their voting laws. So Section 5 prohibited eligible districts from changing their election laws without review, and Section 4B defined those eligible districts. So those two work together. On a party-line vote, the Supreme Court decided that the renewal of Section 5 violated Congress's authority under the 14th and 15th Amendments. Now, those amendments protect every person's right to due process of law and protect citizens from having their right to vote denied due to race, color, or previous condition of servitude, being a slave. Due to exceeding this authority, the 1965 Voting Rights Act violated the 10th Amendment which basically says that any power not given to the federal government by the Constitution belongs to the states. So the Supreme Court basically decided, hey, Congress, you didn't have the power to do this in the first place, to do these two things. So because those violate the amendments and because you didn't have the power to do this, (laughs) well, and then they also further decided that it violated Article 4 of the Constitution, which guarantees states' rights of self-governance. So not only did you violate this, but then you tried to tell the states what to do with a power that you didn't have in the first place. That's honestly as simple as I could boil the decision for this down to. It's a long, convoluted way of saying the SCOTUS decided that Congress shouldn't have done what they did because they can't do what they did. So therefore, states no longer have to do what Congress says in this part of the law. And basically immediately after this decision, I mean, within weeks, a bunch of states passed voting legislation like new restrictions around voter ID and early voting or same-day registration. North Carolina passed strict photo ID requirements, eliminated same-day voter registration, shortened the early voting period by seven days, and made it so that ballots cast at the wrong polling location got thrown out. Florida began began purging voter rolls immediately, only to have the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals rule that their previous purge in 2012 violated the National Voter Registration Act, while they simultaneously stopped the new purge until they got more accurate registration data, because the data that they were using was deemed inaccurate. In fairness, they also expanded early voting. Texas immediately enacted two laws that had already been deemed to violate the 1965 Voting Rights Act Section 5 provision. One was a voter ID law that required photo IDs to match the state's voter rolls, which basically meant that anyone who had changed their name or moved, like women who got married, for example, couldn't vote. And this went on and on 
and on. And that's only as of late 2014. The John Lewis Voting Rights Advancement Act, as it was originally written, was intended to address these discriminatory practices. Specifically, it was meant to review changes that have historically been used to discriminate against voters, such as the institution of voter ID laws or reducing the availability of multilingual voting materials. It has been revised a little since first introduced. And as it currently stands, actually it's been, uh, some ideas for revising it really have been batted around. As it currently stands, it creates a pathway for citizens or the federal government to challenge new voter laws in the courts, especially if the parties can show that the new law hurts minority voting rights. It also requires that all changes made to voting laws are publicly announced affording more opportunity for voters to respond to the new requirements. It would provide new rules for polling places on reservations, uh, requiring states to pay for polling places at no cost to the tribes, and importantly, require states to seek approval from the Justice Department's Civil Rights Division for changes to state or local election procedures. A proposed revision to this act the one that's mainly been tossed around most, uh, would mean that all 50 states, all of them, all of them, would have to let the Justice Department review proposed changes before they were enacted. Any changes to the number of at-large elected positions within a state or smaller political subdivision, all redistricting, all redistricting, all changes to voter ID requirements, all alterations to multilingual voting materials, all changes to precinct locations or to early voting access, and all changes to how voter rolls are purged would be required to pass review by the Justice Department. The John Lewis Voting Rights Act wouldn't retroactively nullify the laws that were passed after the 2013 Supreme Court decision. However, it would stop all laws in the future from moving forward without Justice Department approval. Without question, it would slow down perhaps even stop voter suppression activity or laws that were aimed at voter suppression, even if the actual result could not be determined. Those against H.R. 1, due to it being a sweeping bill that changes a lot of aspects of the American voting system, tend to support this bill a little more due to the fact that it is relatively narrowly tailored to a small portion of voting legislation. It wouldn't establish any automatic voter registry or change the standards for mail-in voting across the nation. Its burden, as it were, would only be felt by those who are, try- are, who are changing how voting is done in their state. And it would likely only chafe those who are trying to do something that would <laughs> harm certain Americans' right to vote. Hmm. Perhaps unsurprisingly, the arguments against this bill basically boil down to government overreach. It would give the federal government considerable power over state and local election laws. Republicans are staunchly against this, protesting that it would essentially have the government control the entire election system. And when you've been trumpeting about a deep state for the last four years, you can't very well allow your constituents to see you letting them control the elections. One interesting argument against this law only comes up 
if the 50-state requirement for voting law review is added to the bill. This seems to be the neatest way to fix the law to remain in line with the Supreme Court's ruling, but it does have one pretty significant downside. It would be a huge burden on the Justice Department. In fact, without a significant funding increase for the Justice Department, it may well freeze all voting legislation changes in the United States for the foreseeable future. In fact, previously opponents of the Voting Rights Act supported a 50-state solution precisely because it would bugger up the whole system and paralyze changes to voting laws. The John Lewis Voting Rights Act is a much narrower piece of legislation than, than H.R. 1. It's far less sweeping and it really should not be viewed as a replacement for the provisions of H.R. 1, which we didn't talk about here, but generally address a lot of those aspects that we talked about at the top of the episode for the restrictions in voting. Um, however, it does lay the groundwork for a check to the powers of less than honorable actors who would try to disenfranchise Americans through inequitable laws. No single law prevents, explicitly prevents voters from going to the polls. Such a law would be unconstitutional. However, as things currently stand, it is perfectly constitutional to put obstacle after obstacle after obstacle in the way of voters to discourage them from going to the polls. And that's what a lot of the tactics have been for decades since since the 1964 Voting Rights Act, 1965 Voting Rights Act, excuse me. If you can't make it illegal, make it hard. Our entire government is formed on a foundation of checks and balances. I see, personally, no reason why one more should be considered the straw that broke the camel's back. That's fair. And there, we do have to acknowledge that since we wrote this episode and did all of this, this research, there has been a new development. Uh, the U.S. Department of Justice is now suing the state of Georgia because of their sweeping new restrictive voting laws. So that case will actually be um, a really interesting determinant, maybe a, a weather vane, if you will, for how this restrictive voting legislation is going to play out moving forward in all of these states that are able to easily and quickly pass this legislation. Um, well, we will have to see how long that lasts and how how um, how many teeth that legislation actually has at the end of the day. Yeah, the a lot of people may um, may remember that one of the key provisions in this. Georgia voting right law or voting rights law was that you couldn't hand out food or water to people standing yes. in line, mm -hmm. which is a great example of how a law can be cut to be legal. It can be written to be legal, but also targeted to discourage. Right. Because if you look at the data, black Americans and especially black Americans in Georgia typically wait in longer lines to vote. And this is from a combination of factors. One is just population density, mm -hmm. but also laws and bills and measures that have been taken to reduce the number of locations where people can vote. Yes. 
meaning that you have to go to fewer places, meaning that it's more people and less places, meaning more people per location. And if you are there waiting for sometimes 12 hours, sometimes more depending on the location, and you didn't bring enough food, Mm -hmm. (laughs) if you get out of line, you run the risk of not being able to make it back in time to vote before they have closed the polls. Now that what I mean by that is if you're in line, you have a legal like you are legally allowed to vote. They can't close the polls while you're in line. But if you leave to get food and everybody votes and you don't make it back in time, they can. Right. Um you know, and then on top of that, you you know, extend how long you have to wait in the line again cuz now you have to go to the back. So it's just it's it's a law that is pretty obviously tailored to discourage a distinct population group from voting. I just don't like, I don't know how it gets any more obvious than that. If you think I got that wrong though, you can sure let me know. (laughs) You know how? Was that a great segue (laughs) or what? Such a good segue. Um, you can you can reach out to us on Facebook. You can do it on Instagram. No, that would be a less effective way to do it. Or Twitter, an even less effective even way less to do it. Even less effective way. Even less. 240 characters at a time get a little uh, constricting. Yeah. Um, but you can find us on all of those locations at Fireside Breakdowns. Just search for it. We'll pop up. Um, you can also email us, firesidebreakdowns at gmail.com. And... Well, that's basically all the ways that you can reach out to us. I want to make it clear because I haven't said it in a while. If we get it wrong, let us know. We aren't so arrogant to believe that we're nailing this 100% every time. We don't mind being corrected. But if you do so, do it with data. Please cite your sources. If you think we're being super duper biased on something, that's fine. We are. We admit it. (laughs) We are biased individuals. We are doing our best but we're still going to be biased. You just can't overcome it. It's going to happen. Show us with data. I promise you we will love it. Sorry, I just had a conversation this last week, and I just really wanted to reiterate (laughs) it on the show. We are are not gods here. We are just humans. We are... It was a great conversation. It was a great conversation. Don't don't read into that too much, but I do want to put it out there on the airwaves for everybody. We know we're going to get it wrong somewhere. Oh, yeah. Um, and our next episode, one week, one week, one week from the day you're listening to this, because we all know that our amazing fans listen to our show every Monday, every Monday, the day it's launched. You can't wait to get this sweet knowledge in your ear holes. Eight of you who listen every single Monday, every single Monday. No, all of them do. All of them do. It's the, it's the data that we get that's wrong that shows us when you guys (laughs) listen to this. I know you're all doing it on Monday. I'm super grateful that like I log in at the end of every Monday and it's like, hey, those eight folks. We appreciate your consistency. We do. We we see you. We, we see do. you. Um, but yeah, a, a, a week from Monday, which would be like July 5th for anybody who 
cares to know the exact date. Um, that is going to be our one year, one year of doing this crazy, crazy podcast. One year ago, we were so naive. So naive. Um, so naive. Shoot, six months ago, we were so naive. Uh, <laughs> but <laughs> it's been a great year. We are very appreciative of those of you who have found us and made us a part of your routine. Um, look forward to that episode. We've got so much exciting stuff to talk about that week. And I believe that's going to be the week that we do our, our review push. If you're going to do it, yes. which we hope you do, please. And, um, with that, I think it's time to talk about some good news. Okay, okay, okay. I'm really excited about this one. I yeah, do it. I really, I want to talk about a budding Olympic superstar in this week's good news. Shakari Richardson became the youngest qualifying track and field athlete so far for the United States when she won the 100-meter dash with a blistering time of 10.86 seconds. That is the sixth fastest legal time ever recorded professionally. And note, I did not say for a woman. That's just the sixth fastest. Legal meaning that she didn't have a tailwind pushing her along. Correct. And also, yeah. you know, there were no performance enhancing drugs involved. Well, yeah. Oh, yes, that too. <laughs> <Correct>. <laughs> that too. But wind can make something an illegal or, or at least not eligible for Correct. the record from what I understand. Yeah. I don't want there. I, I just don't want people imagining like an underground 100 meter dash <laughs> circuit. <laughs> I do want you imagining that. I do too. Now it's like Fast and the Furious. You just line up at some warehouse district. It's like one o'clock in the morning. A bunch of people walking around in leather and mini skirts. There's like black market for running shoes. Right. You don't even have real kickoff blocks. They're just bricks that you stack up. There's like all kinds of spray you can put on your running shoes that make them barely able to run on the <laughs> everybody comes for the races, but really they're there for the, the blowouts when somebody hits a patch of gravel oh and goes gosh. spiraling off into the crowd. Right. I'm sorry. Okay. This has gone way too far. Oh, man. But but also not far enough. So there's that. But if, if you I need that screenplay on my desk tomorrow. Oh, man. That'd be a hilarious short. Hilarious. Guest starring Usain Bolt. Obviously. 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 If you have not checked her out, you should. She has incredible energy and she's just so unabashedly herself. She is undeniably vibrant and she ran this last weekend with long acrylic nails and firebolt orange hair. And in her interviews, it's just so apparent how much her family means to her. She is already an icon. She is filling my Instagram feed but the final reason that she is in this week's good news section, as if we needed more reasons for her to be here, is that right. she is an openly LGBTQ plus athlete. In her interviews before her last race, she proudly stated that her girlfriend picked out her hair color because it spoke to her. The fact was that it was just so loud and so vibrant. And that's who I am, she said. She is pretty freaking cool i wanted to say a different mm. word there but i'm not willing to to uh earn us an explicit ranking just for the good news section right she's amazing and it is 
awesome to see her out there dominating the field and just being every part of herself. Absolutely. I, I love her story. I have been watching it like crazy. I can't wait to see her at the Olympics. I think it's going to be incredible. So I also watched the race like 20 times because it only took a couple minutes. Yeah. And it's it's so good. It's uh, it's just a great race. Anyway, very excited for it. Um, and I believe that is everything for this week. Going to get you all out of here. Uh, we'll be back one week from today with another uh, blisteringly fast but not really. It'll take about an hour yeah. uh, podcast uh, circulating around some more laws, some more voting laws, and um, in particular, some stuff going on in Missouri, I think. Oh, yeah. And until that time, thank you very much for listening, everybody, and take care of each other. Yeah.